Thanks, guys. That was so awesome. And thanks to all of you who were involved in that ministry. I wanted those guys to share that story because I, I, uh, it'll become clear as we go on. But there's some things happening and behind the scenes. And if we don't get people up here, you don't know that they're happening. And God's doing things. And especially a ministry like prayer that happens behind the scenes. Okay? So that's why I wanted them up here today. And in fact... Um, <clears throat> You know, I've talked a lot about prayer. Uh, I can teach all day long till I'm blue in the face. Uh, actually, I led a, a prayer seminar for 14 years across the country, different churches across the country, uh, a, a, few, a number of years back now. <clears throat> but really, it's what's happening by those people that are doing it that you need to see. And, you know, my, my wife's involved in this uh, prayer ministry and, and in that prayer room. And I, I often have thought that we should take that room over there, the board room we used to call it, and put the word furnace room on there, okay? Because of the story that uh, I've told you before, but maybe you don't remember, maybe you haven't heard. If you have and you do remember, just go, ah, oh, when I get to the punchline. Um, but, you know, I, we, we can't really put that on there, I guess, because it's also the rest stop for the uh, police officers when they come and they say, furnace room, what's this? But uh, the story goes like this. There's a, a preacher, a famous preacher that people are still quoting and using his insights today and his commentaries and whatnot, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. He was one of the greatest communicators of the gospel of all time and certainly the greatest uh, at that time. And uh, he also had a really good sense of humor and he would uh, show you know, visitors and guests around and one time in the early um, 1900s he had some friends and guests there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle so he gave him a tour okay so he gave him a tour of the balcony and this big building and the pulpit and all these rooms and then he took him downstairs below the platform uh, to a door that said furnace room on it and he said, this is the most important room. If it wasn't for this room, the gospel wouldn't get shared. Nothing would work. My sermons would flop. Everything would be horrible. And people are going, oh, boy, this is another one of Spurgeon's jokes. Until he opened the door, and behind that door were 50 people sitting around praying. And it, he says, that's what fuels the ministry of this church. And that's what I want to say about those people, right, in our church family. That's what fuels the ministry church. And if God's putting it on your heart to join them, join them. Because that's what makes it, that's where the fires are stoked. That's the furnace room. And the cool thing that, that uh, Spurgeon said is that once he got him back there in that room, and, he's, and he said, and you know, if I'm out there preaching and I feel like it's a flop and people aren't listening and they're going to sleep, I stomp on the floor. And it reminds them they got to pray harder and stoke the fires more. So that's my furnace room. You guys are my furnace room. Now you're in on it. And if I ever in the middle of a sermon just go, you know, you know I'm not mad. I'm just trying to get you to pray harder. Okay? So there, there you go. But it is a vital part. And here, here's the interesting thing. Here's the, here's the question for the day that will take us from there to where we're going. The things that God does behind the scenes are so vital, and we've got we to see what they are. Because the question is, is, are there things that God looked for that maybe we wouldn't normally see? unless we're looking for them, like the prayer ministry, are there things that God was looking for in the beginning of the Jesus movement, when Jesus was just starting our faith, when Jesus was just launching the good news, are there things that uh, were there that he looks for every time he's going to wake up the people of God, every time he's going to reach out and, and, and bring droves of people to Christ? Because we're in this series called Won't You Be an I Neighbor, which by now you've figured out we're trying to be neighbors the Jesus way. In other words, we're trying to be neighbors who share good news through our lives and our lifestyles. And, and yes, sometimes telling our stories. 
But we're trying to say, how do we, how do we be Jesus people on mission in this world, in this, in, in this day and age? And, and I've been doing a lot of reading and rereading and restudying and, and, uh, Christian history and different things like that, listening to podcasts of others who've worked through it. And, and I actually did a, a, a thesis, a 240-page thesis on an Atari computer. So, it, you know, it was a long time ago. Um, I did this thesis on what it takes for God to do a revival in the world or in America. And there's a very clear pattern that pops up. And the question is, is that pattern in the Scriptures? And as I was reading my Love This Book stuff this week, I realized there it was, right in the Scriptures we read this week, in the book of Luke about Jesus. And and when he started, just before he started his ministry, and right on in when he called his first disciples, you see this pattern showing up. Because here's, here's the thing. This is what I've been being, I'm trying not, I'm not being cynical when I say this. I'm just being questioning, okay? If you can't question, if you ever go to a church where it says you can't ask questions, run, okay? So I'm just questioning. In the last two decades, there's been all this word and all these ideas of what it makes, you know, what's going to make the church grow, what's going to make, you know, an impact on this country and on our society, and, and how do we bring the good news of the love of Jesus to people? There's all these theories, okay? So we, we've had several kinds of churches in the last two decades. We've had seeker church, tractional church, missional church, emergent church, church reform church, the church growth movement, and I'm missing about five different churches. Five different strategies, okay? All these strategies in the last two decades. Umpty, what if it's just going back to how Jesus did it? How, what if it goes back to those pad, that pattern? Because there is a pattern of revival starting not just in the last, you can see it really clearly in the last 300 years of his, church history, but going all the way back to Jesus, there is a pattern. So I'd like to invite you on an adventure with me today to find the pattern. So let's open our Bibles, if you got them, to Luke chapter 4, and I'm going to begin at verse 41, and I'm just going to warn you, I'm going to blow right through chapter divisions. We're ignoring chapter divisions today. We're going to walk through a section of, passage, uh, of Scripture here, verse by verse, and then we're going to skip to another section and go verse by verse, uh, and just see if we can discover this. And it begins in verse 42 of Luke chapter 4. This is Jesus before he really, uh, he was going public, just, just starting to go public, but before he called his disciples. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. Come on, stay with us. We want you to stay with us. But he said, I must proclaim the good news. I, I brought this message. I must bring the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because I, that is why I was sent. So he kept preaching in the synagogues in these other towns of Judea, which is in the south, bound by Jerusalem and so forth. So what I first want you to notice is this solitary place business. What was he doing out there? You know? Because Luke tells us several times what he was doing out there, and we're going to get to that. I'm just going to sort of tease it and drop the question for you. We'll get to it later. I'm not going to tell you what the answer is. You probably can already begin to guess. But did he need a break? Was he tired of these crazy, you know, Judean people? What, what was Jesus doing out in this solitary quiet place. But I also want you to notice the emphasis is on, the emphasis is on places that he needed to be. He knew that there were key places that God had picked out to do something special. He knew 
that God in his timing knew just the right time. If you're wondering about that, look at Galatians chapter 4 where it says Paul's description of the birth of Jesus on this earth is at just the right time, and the implication is in just the right place. In Palestine? You know, in ancient, really? You know, why not 2018 when we've got, you know, social media and Twitter? and all that? Apparently that's not the way. They said, at just the right time. And Jesus is saying, there's some places I haven't been that I am called to be, these key places, okay? And so, 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 so Jesus is saying, I've got to go to those places too. And, you know, and the significance of this is this, okay? Just think about this. The significance is, is when God chooses to do a thing, he doesn't just, um, you know, do it because we're really, really good askers, but we're being really, really good Christians. He does it when he's all, where he's already planned and he knows it's the best place. So it's on him. It's not on you and me. It's on you and me to keep our eyes peeled for God. Who are you bringing in front of me? God, what is it in my life you want to do? What's your mission for me? What this seems to indicate is God's got a mission, a purpose for every, each one of his followers in the life that he has given them, Allah, you and me. And that would be true for every church and every city and every state and every country and so forth and so on. Key places, God knows exactly where they are. Now, look what happens next in, in the beginning of chapter 5. Um, it says, one day Jesus was standing by this lake of Gennesaret. So Lake of Gennesaret is the Sea of Galilee, okay, the Lake of Galilee up north. So he's gone from the south to the north, and you can begin to ask yourself, why did he do that? Apparently, God wanted to start his revolution in the north. Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, because I mean, in, in those days, I mean, maybe it wasn't the greatest, but the religious capital of the Jewish world was Jerusalem in the south. Yeah, they were under Roman occupation, but they, of all people, should have had it dialed in. But Jesus doesn't go, stay there. He goes to the north and begins the ministry and picks his disciples in his old stomping grounds in Galilee. And he does it on the side, shores of Galilee. In fact, what's interesting now is, is um, as he's standing there, he's seeing people, and he's going to get um, see a, a boat here in a minute. One of the greatest archaeological finds of the last couple of decades in, in Israel was a boat about 20 feet long. It's just the ribs, I mean, and some of the side rails and stuff like that too. But you can actually see it. When you go to Israel, when you go to Galilee, they have it on display, but it was from the time of Jesus, about a 20-foot boat, probably about what Jesus was about to get into. And uh, a little commercial here, in two weeks uh, from now, uh, at the first service, the 915 service, I'm not sure which room, but we're going to have an Israel meeting for the 2018, uh, 2019 uh, Israel trip. Uh, we're going to, you know, just for information's sake, for anybody that's wondering, so kind of keep that on your radar if you're wondering. The reason I'm doing it now is because this is a, a conference-wide for all our family of churches in the Pacific Northwest. It's for everybody, and we've already got, you know, 20, 22 people signed up for this. So we can take 40. I just want to make sure East Ridgers get to stack it if you want to. So that's why we're doing it. You can, you can check it out if you want to, but that's the commercial. But he's but, but, but we will see that, and we will also see this. I want to show you this picture. This is the harbor in Capernaum. So as Jesus is walking along the, the, the seashore of, of the Sea of Galilee, he comes across these people, and, and I just want you, I'm going to read the rest of the story, uh, or the rest of uh, this particular encounter. 
And I want you to just look at this. If you've got your Bible open, go ahead and read with me. But I want you to kind of see and picture Jesus walking along uh, in this Capernaum, because Jesus spent most of his time in Galilee in Capernaum, because that's where Peter was. In fact, we think we found Peter's house in Galilee. I mean, I didn't, but some people did. And they built a church over it. It's kind of weird, but anyway, you can see it. Okay. Um, here, here's, here it is. I'm going to start again with one day. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, people were crowding around him, listening to the uh, word of God. So whatever God's going to do always starts with listening. It starts with some new information that we didn't have before that God is up to. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. So they fished, and now they're cleaning things up. And he got into one of the boats, because the crowd was so big, apparently, and the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, put out to deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So he says, let's go fishing. Okay? And Simon, who would soon to become Peter, right? This is Simon Peter, says this, verse 5. Simon answered, uh, Master, we've worked all night and haven't caught anything. Why is he saying, why is he saying that? Well, again, he's, he's the master of, uh, you know, uh, tact, right, Peter? <laughs> he would never stick his foot in his mouth, uh, yuck, yuck. But he's the one that's sort of the spokesman for the crowd. Even then, these guys, these fishermen, he's the spokesman. He's the one with guts to speak up. Give him some cred for that. So he speaks up and said, we've been fishing all night. We've been listening to your teaching. It's really cool. Probably they've heard a lot of his teaching. But you got to know we're fishermen, and you're probably not, and we have been fishing all night, all right? Which there's two problems with this. There's two Two reasons why this is impractical. The first one is they just cleaned their nets. And they're going to have to reclean their nets. The second one is nobody fished in the daytime. You just didn't do it. You didn't go out because the fish weren't active. They were down by the bottom. They weren't up at the surface where the nets could catch them because they, you know, they stayed away from the light. So you don't go out there and, and, and fish in the daytime. Everybody knows that. So it's sort of an impractical thing that Jesus is asking these guys to do. He's asking them to do something they've done a thousand times, but he's asking them to do it just a little bit different. Have you ever had that? Where God's asking you to do something that you've done a thousand times, but he's asking you to do it just a little bit different? You see, what this indicates is, is Jesus not, as, not only going after the, unli- uh, the, uh, the key places, but he's going after unlikely people and then he's asking them to do unlikely things. Unlikely people in, in doing unlikely things. I know you've done this a thousand times before. I know you've, you, you're, you're all, you know, uh, you know, fishermen and so forth. But, you know, think about what's at stake here. Their reputation was at stake because there's a crowd there watching them go out fishing. It's like, wh- wh- where are they going? <laughs> I'm a businessman. I know you don't fish during the daytime. People probably kind of clucked to themselves as they took the boats out. You know, their reputation, their their families were there. Like, what is he doing now? But I think the biggest implication of this, what is at stake, is is Peter going to trust Jesus at this point? And think of all that is riding on that. Listen to this. So, he says, let's go fishing. Peter says, hey, we haven't caught anything all night. And this is why I love this 
next part. This is one of my favorite lines, not just a verse, but my favorite lines in all the Gospels. We've done, we, ha we haven't caught anything all night, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. I will take responsibility. I will let down the nets. You know, you can translate that out if you want to. On your word, not just because you say so, but on your word, based only solely on your word, Jesus, been listening to your teaching, been sitting in the boat, on your word, uh, you know, this is great, but think about the significance of this moment. Peter has no idea. It's because of this line, because you say so, Jesus, that we know about Peter today. All the stuff that happened through Peter and the disciples, it's because of this line. I mean, imagine if, if, if you know, Jesus could have sort of, you know, done this thing where he brings technology in. Um, after VBS, my, my grandson calls this the TV. What if he brought one of these things in and, and uh, it, it showed Peter what the future was going to look like? And what if he put a picture of St. Peter's in, in uh, the uh, Vatican Square right up there and, he's, and he says, Peter, if you just do this one thing for me, then you, you don't have no idea right now, but, but years from now, somebody will build this giant building right there, this great big church, and they're going to name it after you because you're not Peter yet, but you will be Peter, you know? And, and in fact, they're going to nominate a, a successor to you. They're going to nominate a successor to you uh, for, you know, apostolic succession and all that. Every once in a while, they're going to call it a pope. And, and you know, most of the world's not going to believe in this particular thing, but everybody's going to watch it. And it's going to be this beautiful building. It's going to take 1,800 years to build this bad boy. And then you don't know about this either, but the symbols that dot uh, Rome today, this eagle and, you know, the eagle of Rome, it's all going to be gone. And you know what they're going to have there instead? A cross. You've seen the Romans put people on crosses. You don't understand this yet. But that's going to be the symbol. And it's all going to be because of what you and I are doing right here in this moment. He doesn't say that, but he could have said that. Because that's exactly what happened. And it all dials down into this moment where God has this, here's a big theological word, sovereignty. This, this thing where he's in control and he's always working behind the scenes. And he wants us to connect with whatever that is. We don't see the whole picture most of the time, but he's always moving the pieces. He's always looking for key places. He's always looking for unlikely people who, who are willing to follow him at those decisive moments, even if they don't know they're the decisive moment after all. I mean, think of this. Think, think of the, um, how a single decision to do something that you've done a thousand times, but just because you believe God has put it on your heart, you know, you're doing your devotions, and he, maybe you're sitting in church, and you're listening, and says, hey, I want you to do it differently tomorrow when you wake up. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's uh, cracking a Bible. I haven't done that for a while. Maybe it's praying. And the way he's asking you to do it is don't pray a one-and-done prayer. Ask for, you know, you know the God would reach out and, and help someone or something. But continue to do it. Keep it up. What, whatever it is, you, you know, that, that one thing, you, we have no idea what God would do, will do with those simple, simple decisions to take one step in his direction that way. And that's exactly what Peter does. And look what, look what happens next. When they had done so, now notice this, they hadn't had a Bible study yet. They hadn't made any decisions to follow Jesus yet. But they did so, 
And when they did so, you know, you begin to ask yourself, why, why did they do so? Well, could it have to do with what Jesus was doing out there in those lonely places, those solitary places? I don't know. I can't tell you yet. Here we go. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish in their nets, and they began to break, so they signaled their partners in the other boat. Apparently, there were enough of these fishermen that they needed, enough of these disciples that they needed another boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Peter saw this, he fell on his knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So Peter, you know, this this is so important, I don't want you to miss this. Notice what's happening here. What Peter is is experiencing here is he's experiencing all the teaching that Jesus has been doing, all the theology that he had learned and so forth, and it had been boiled down, not dumbed down, but it had been boiled down to the simple truth, the nugget of the truth of you are God and I am not. I get it. You know, God is God and I'm not. God's up to something big here and it freaks me out. I'm just willing to tell you, it freaks me out because I don't belong here. I'm out of my league here. But it was that single act of trust that caused the gospel to get all the way to you and me and throughout the world. Isn't that interesting? Peter had no idea that in his failing, in what he felt was his extreme shortcomings at this moment, he had no idea what good news that was because Jesus was going to be able to use him in that way. Watch this. Verse 9. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. I imagine Jesus smiling, not making fun of his fear, but saying, it's okay. And picking him up and say, come on, let's go. You see, see, I think that's the answer that Jesus wants to give. These guys were just, just um, everyday businessmen. Weren't that successful, but they put food on the table for their families. And all of a sudden, this happens to them in the middle. And Peter has no idea at this point that his admission that Jesus is divine, or at least he's connected with the divine at this point, he, he's not probably sure what's going on, Peter's admission that he is in a space, in a place where he's not really worthy and he doesn't measure up because he's a sinner is a prerequisite for amazing things. Because when you think about it, in, in, in Jesus' way of thinking, it's not about you know, having it all together and praying the perfect prayer and doing all No, it's, it's on him. All he is just saying is, do you believe I can do that? Do you trust me that much? Do you trust that I can even forgive your sin? You see, Peter's humility at this point on his knees is actually an elevator up, not not taking him down. It's an elevator up to spiritual greatness. And he probably didn't even wake up in the morning thinking about spiritual greatness that day. But Jesus picks him up and says, okay, here's the thing. Here's my answer to your theological principle you just figured out that you are, I am God and you're not. Here it is. I love you. Now let's get up and go. Let's get going. I got a mission. I got this purpose. And and I'm going to be there with you. We are going to have a great life together, Peter. His head had to be spinning. But have you ever had that moment when you're confessing to God and you're saying, you know, I I know I don't deserve this and so forth. And God says, yeah, you're right. But but your your faith is, uh, in your faith, I've forgiven you. So, hey, let's go. Because what Jesus, I think, is expressing here is his love for Peter. 
his love for people who are willing to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. It's not up to us to be the perfect neighbors and to share our faith with people. It's up to us to know who we are before God and let him lift us up and fill us and make it happen through us. And the conduit that he uses is the love of God. You remember Jerry Root, a guy we had last year, he teaches at Wheaton College and Billy Graham School for Evangelism, Dr. Jerry Root, he's a great guy. He remembers you because he talks to me about you all the time. He loves you guys. And uh, this week I sent him an email because I saw that he had an article in Christianity Today uh, called, you know, how can we overcome the fear of evangelism, okay? And it wound up being timely. As I read it, it's perfect timing for this part of the scripture right here where we're at. And here's, here's what he says in, in that article. He says, confidence in evangelism begins in the love of God, understanding God's love for you, his unconditional love. Perhaps one of the reasons we are so hesitant to tell others about Jesus is that we've forgotten how deeply and unconditionally he loves us. Jesus said that if we uh, abide in him, we will bear much fruit. He also said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. So for Jesus, admitting who you are before him isn't a thing that he, he uses to drive you away. It's what he uses to pull you in. He say, yeah, I know, but I love you, and I've forgiven you because that faith, that acknowledgement of who you are and who I am, that's, we're good to go. Let's go do our mission. And you, and you remember that love, and that makes all the difference in the world. You see, that clarifies some things, doesn't it? That clarifies why these guys would just leave everything behind. You know, why they would, you know, pull up their boats and leave everything and leave their family and leave everything and just follow him. Because it's like, if there's a guy that is like this and, and, and loves us anyway when we come and he says he has a purpose for us, how can you not follow him? How can you not fall for him would be their answer to us. And you begin to wonder, what is it that makes people do that? What is it that makes a person who's got a promising legal career that is going to be incredibly lucrative? And maybe they'll maybe even make it on the news channels or whatever. Maybe they're a high flyer in a legal career and it's really coming together. What causes people like that to leave that legal career and go become pastors, which I'm telling you is not lucrative in that way? And you're not going to be on any of the news channels because nobody wants to know what you think, at least not on those news channels with the exception of a couple of them, but anyway, it doesn't another matter. But, you know, what is it? Or, or what is it about someone who's a, on a singing career or an acting career, and they're just flying high, and they're going to make some records, and all, sudden, and all of a sudden she stops and she goes to seminary and learns theology, becomes a professor or a teacher in theology, and, you know, a much less, in many ways, many ways of people, or many people's thinking, less attractive, what is it that causes nor normal people to become teachers or, you know, invest in prison ministry? Or, or what is it that, that causes millions and millions of normal, everyday Christians to live a lifestyle and live by values in such a way where they refuse to join into the dog-eat-dog -dog world, a, a pathway that looks like it could be more lucrative, could be more attractive, could, you know, really send them somewhere, but they refuse to do it, and instead they live by love, uh, joy, and, you know, uh, patience and the, the fruit of the Spirit. What is it about that makes them do that? Well, I think it's what Jesus was doing in the solitary places, in the lonely places that I was teasing it out. Because Luke tells us four verses later in verse 15 what was going on with Jesus there. 
It says, yet the news about him spread all the more, so the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to the lonely places because he just couldn't stand people. Nope, didn't say that. Jesus withdrew to the lonely places and prayed. Jesus prayed? Jesus prayed. Now, wait a minute. He's the second member of the Trinity. Apparently, even Jesus needed to get quiet and pray and ask God and be communicated to by God. Because you know that prayer is the same with him as it is with us. It's not just us asking God for stuff. It's us listening from God the Father and God, right? It's listening back and forth. And, and, and so Jesus was out there in those lonely places. Do you know that Luke says more than any other gospel writer, any more than, more than in, uh, Matthew, Mark, or John, that Jesus went to the lonely places to pray? He says it five times. If you look up the word to pray or prayer in the, in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see 45 times Jesus either is praying or he talks about prayer or he's demonstrating prayer to his disciples. 45 times. It must be a big deal. In fact, here's the thing. Jesus started praying every, or started everything with this praying business. So he's out there and he's praying and he's asking God. Even Jesus is doing this in the midst of all this. You know, as we, as we followed through here, what we've actually begun to see as we've seen that pattern that I was talking about earlier from Christian history about every single time, and this is, you can see it more clearly in the last 300 years, but now we're seeing it all the way back 2,000 years ago, that when God's going to revive his people, when God's going to do a revival, when God's going to, you know, we, we don't use the word revival so much anymore because it came to mean, you know, going out and preachers getting sweaty and screaming at people and the sawdust trail and all that kind of stuff. Probably good we put it to bed, but I think it's time to bring it back because we're, we're over that, past that kind of image now. But every time God's going to revive his people and revive a city and revive a country, every single time there's a pattern of four things that happen. And it comes up again and again in, as you read uh, Christian history. Uh, I've just been listening to a podcast by a guy named Mark Sayers, who's also a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. He's a theologian, a kind of a culture vulture like me. I love listening to this guy. And, and, he, and he, he has articulated it in four phrases or four words what is happening around the world today? We're starting to see these pieces move, and we're seeing it move in places like Portland. Here's, here's what they are. The four-phase four pattern when God's going to do an awesome faith-raising thing among people. First of all, he looks for the unlikely people. You start thinking of the most unlikely places, which would be us, okay? The pagan frontier out here, as one of my professors used to call it. The pagan Northwest, whatever. We're better than that. Anyway, unlikely people. Key, key places. Because God looks for those places just like he looks for sinners who can be transformed. He looks for key places. Again, nobody's going to believe this. They're going to have to believe it's me. I'm going to pick Portland. I'm going to pick Melbourne. I'm going to pick, you know, Austin, Texas. or One of those off places like that. Theology boiled down. Not dumbed down but boiled down to the simple truth that Jesus says, I love you unconditionally, and oh, by the way, I'll do whatever it takes for you to meet, know, and follow me. That's been there since the beginning. Real simple, and all of a sudden, you know, we say, we think, that's just too simple. i got to talk people into it. You don't have to talk people into anything. You pray, 
and God gives you the opportunity to share your faith with somebody, share your story, and the Holy Spirit talks them into it, not us. God, by the power, it's, it's not, you know, sometimes we, we get in this thing where if, if it's understandable, it must be too simple. It, it's, it's not effective, but it is effective. Powerful, clarified theology, but the final thing is prayer, the prayer of God's people. In this case, the prayer of Jesus. And that one overarchs all the other three. If you look at it in history, it happens again and again and again. Let's just go back a couple hundred years. Do you know there was a hundred-year prayer meeting that went on from 1727 until the 1820s? 24-7, somebody was praying in this town, in this community. It was the Moravians. And their leader, their, their, their spiritual leader, was a guy who had a really crazy name. His name was Count Zinzendorf, kind of like Dracula or something. But this guy was an amazing guy. He called people to prayer, and they prayed for 100 years, 24-7. And you say, well, wow, you know, it must have been a big town. Nope, it was a tiny town. And here's another interesting thing. Over the course of that 100 years, there were maybe five to 600 people prayed. This was not like a mass of people and all this complicated stuff and getting into the Moda Center and all that kind of Nope, this was just people who committed over the course of that for somebody to be praying and a group of people to be praying 24-7 for 100 years. You know what happened in those 100 years? Two great awakenings happened. The first one and the second one in America and in England and across Europe and all across the West as far as Australia. Two. And right after that, the father of the nowadays missionary movement. You, you know, we think that missionaries have always been going out, blah, 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 the way they are. Mm-mm. Didn't happen until like the 1820s or so when a man named William Carey went to India. And it came right on the heels of the 100-year prayer movement that God would revive his people and revive the world and reach in like he did when he first came. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? We're a part of that. Because you fast forward another 100 years, there's another historian, a church historian named James Edwin Orr. And he did a, a talk, a video at Lausanne a number of years ago. And, and in there, he mentions us, Portland. And I've told you about this before, but th- let me just fill in some details. Portland, Oregon in 1905 had a, had a great awakening. Had a, 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 us, Portland, Oregon, had this spiritual awakening where people were coming to Christ in droves, okay? And what preceded it in 1905 was that 200 businesses, the major businesses in Portland, Oregon, downtown, Myron Frank and other people like that. Do you remember them, Myron Frank? They signed a a contract together that none of them would be open. They'd close their doors from 11 o'clock in the morning until 2 in the afternoon so that people could go to their houses of worship and pray. Secular, ordinary business people. And they signed the contract so nobody could cheat and make money off the other people. And that's what preceded the movement. And Jane Bedwin Orr calls that out. We're starting to see signs of this today. That's why I wanted you to hear from Mike and Mike. I mean, I've heard this three, four, five times, what I'm going to tell you right now. There's a, there's, a, there's a rule that's being talked about among Christians. I've heard it on podcasts. I've heard it personally from people that I've talked to. It's something I've started doing in the last five years. I just thought it was, I didn't realize I was doing it, okay? And what this, the rule is this, pray before phone. Simple. Pray, read scripture before you pick up your phone, before you do your emails, before you do your, your um, texts and so forth, which is why you don't hear from me till I'm done on, a, on a, any given morning, okay? 
And, and, and I, I started doing that for a while, you know, even in the office or whatever. I mean, let, in, in, the, in the name of full admission, I do pick up my phone to pay for my bill at Starbucks for coffee. But come on. I mean, really. I mean, maybe Jesus likes coffee. I don't know. But, but, you, but you, you leave it aside because there's so much tech, you know, and certainly, certainly I've learned this. I ain't, I'm not opening the news at all until I've talked to God first because <laughs> Sometimes it just messes up my whole day. But if I talk to him first, then not so much. I mean, pray before. How about if we do that? Pray before phone. Pray in Scripture before phone. Not telling you how long that needs to be. Just saying, what if we all did that? See, that's the beginning of these kinds of long-term prayer, like the 100-year prayer meeting. What if that's how it works today? You see, that, I think, is why Jesus gave us this example to pray and, and, and to, to, uh, that even he needed prayer and that even he needed to have that happen because every time God does a great thing, there are unlikely people in key places who finally get clarity on the teaching of Jesus and what it, the good news is all about, and they start praying, and God does stuff through them and in them and stuff when they're not even looking all around them. What would that be like? I just get the sense that we're on the edge of that in our city and in our church. I really do. And I've heard other people confirm that to me. People within our church, but also pastors and friends that I have around the city. And people watching from far away. You know? I had one guy tell me, man, I'm really hoping it comes to you guys before you spread the rest of your yuck to the rest of the country. But, you know, get over it. We're having fun out here. And, but that's what uh, I, I think why Jesus exemplifies prayer in those quiet and lonely places. Now, here's the thing. I know you're busy. Absolutely, no question about it. Jesus was extremely busy at this time. So let's make it personal. Let's skip over to chapter 6, and look what he does in verse 12, because it's another example of what we're talking about. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God, the whole night. And when morning came, he called his disciples, all the people that were following him, to him, and chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. And there's the list that we all know. Look who's on the bottom, by the way, Judas Iscariot. Even Jesus' prayers, apparently. You know, God gives freedom to individuals to make their own choices. Didn't have to, but he did. And even Jesus had the situation who somebody bailed on him in an awful way. But Jesus apparently at defining moments, spends an extra time in prayer. Why? Did he need it? Did he need it? Well, yeah, he probably needed to talk to God, to God the Father about it. But for us, we, we really need it. But on the other hand, what we need it for is to be prepared. You know, God puts it on our hearts, hey, I want you to pray because something's coming. I had that situation a few months ago where I, I thought I might have a big decision, a defining decision to make in my life. And, and I wasn't sure. I was only 60% sure. But then I sensed God saying, yeah, I want you to pray about that. I want you to just to, just to uh, you know, bring that to me. And so I did for a month. And when the time came, yep, sure enough, I had to make that decision. But it was, it was natural and normal at that point because I'd already prayed about it and he'd already worked in me about it. And, and, and the thing is, is that's why we need to do it. So I'm going to ask you to, to pull out these flyers right here because it's not Every week that we get to do exactly what Jesus is, is calling us to do, or what Jesus exemplifies, it's not every week we get to do the Jesus stuff on the very Sunday morning we talk about the Jesus stuff. 
But today's one of those days. So take out this flyer, and as you're doing that, let me explain to what this is. We're, we're in this series called Won't You Be My Neighbor, but we're following a pattern of a movement that was started by someone in our family of churches, a, a woman by the name of Beth Severinsen, and she's great. She's a wonderful evangelist. She's a wonderful person. And, and she's developed this, this process called Bless. It's just a way of naming what happens when people begin to pray, and then they live a lifestyle that's inviting others to meet, know, and follow Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's being a neighbor to other people. So we started today with B, which is bless, or begin with prayer. Next week, we'll talk about L, which is listen with care. Then we're going to talk about eating together, which that's easy. Who wouldn't want to do that? Then we're going to talk about sharing, I mean, uh, serving somebody. And then finally, we're going to talk about how do you share your story? You see, that comes at the end. But today, what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to take this perforation right here and fold it. You actually have two perforations. And this is this thing we've done before. We've called it the Frank List. In fact, over here in the circles, you can see the Frank right there. Friends, relatives, acquaintances, neighbors, and coworkers. But you, you write on one side <clears throat> what um, the names of people that you're willing to pray for as we go through this over the course of the week. And then in a, in a moment, I'll tell you what to, where, where to take them. You, take, you, you write them on both sides. You rip one off and you put it uh, in, the, in the basket where I'm going to tell you, and then you take the other one, you use it for a bookmark in your Bible during this series. And you're just praying for those people every day. And here's the thing. I understand if you don't have any non-Christian friends in the moment and so forth, you know, if you've been a Christian more than two years, chances are you don't. And sorry about that. But if, if you don't know exactly who you ought to pray for, I literally have some new neighbors I just found out this morning, so I might put them on. But here's, here's what you do. You just write this. Lord, won't you let me be a neighbor? <laughs> Just put that down and say, he'll bring somebody into your life. He'll bring somebody to mind over time. Lord, won't you let me be a neighbor? <laughs> and, and, and then put that on there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call, call the band out here because we're going to sing a song. And as we're doing that, I just want you to pray over these, or, you know, and, and sing this song as a prayer. Write these down as we're doing it because I'm going to ask you to do something with these as we take communion today. And uh, I'll say this one more thing as the band com is coming out. I've had the opportunity, which is amazing to me, that God would let me do this. It really is. It still amazes me. Every Easter, every Christmas, every time I get to give an invitation from up here to hundreds of people sitting out there to accept Christ, to follow Christ, okay, to follow him, and many for the first time. I did it last week, and we had one person write the, the B letter down saying, I'm believing for the first time. That's our job to nurture them in discipleship. Isn't that, that cool? I get to get to do that, and, and, and I understand that most people don't get to do that. But I will say this, the times that, and they still amaze me, the times that God has used me to share my story with artists or engineers or business people or construction people or medical people, he's given me that chance from time to time over the years, even though I'm a pastor. I mean, who's going to talk to a pastor that's weird enough to do this for a living, all right? Every time that I've gotten to do that and God's used it for some good, they've been on one of these lists. Every single time. And I wasn't even necessarily pushing it that hard. He just brought up the opportunity in the midst of it. Living life together, and he brought up the opportunity. So that's what I'm asking you to think about and pray about and ask God for over the next five weeks as we go through this series. And as we, as we, we share right now, just before communion, before I come up and t tell you how to take care of uh, these, uh, these lists, um, let's just use this song as a prayer back to God. He loves it when we say his words and sing his words back to him 
as we're bringing these, uh, these names and these people to him.